1: You're listening to The Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good day, everybody. This is The Tom Ficklin Radio Show, and today's really a a fascinating and intriguing opportunity for us to tell our story. Uh, You don't have to wait for Black History Month or Afrocentric Month or uh, any other month for people to really understand that our, our journey, our careers, our commitment to what I want to call life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for women, uh, children, and men is something that can't be neglect- neglected. And we're, we're really honored and pleased today to have uh, uh, the, Dr. Brittany Williams with us, Reverend Le- Dr. Leroy Perry, and Reverend Elvin Clayton uh, to kind of share, uh, sure. kind of share and commune about what our passion and purpose is. And we're going to really focus on uh, Dr. Dr. Williams, who has been kind enough to. Uh, Kind enough to join us, and she's a cardiothoracic surgeon. I'll repeat that: a cardiothoracic surgeon. You may say, "What is that? Who does that? What does that mean?" And uh, we're going to get into that and have some discussion. But really, uh, she she deals with with the lungs, one of our most, if not our most vital organ. Uh, and so many different diseases and injuries can occur to the lungs. So she's a cardiothoracic surgeon uh what she, she does in general for late and late late speak is she diagnoses and offers promising treatment to elements of the heart lungs right. esophagus and other parts of the chest if you're if you're watching uh on on zoom or or on uh youtube and not just with the audio you will see dr williams has been kind enough to, she has her scrubs on this is this is not a vogue dress but she literally has just come from 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 healing someone from working with someone from from sharing the love and using her expertise as a cardiothoracic surgery, a fellow at Emory University in the Atlanta area. Uh, She's chosen to focus her medical career on really addressing this deadliest cancer. You hear so much about breast cancer, legitimately breast cancer, prostate, et cetera, but I was just unaware of how that that cancer, uh, 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 Dr. Williams' lung cancer was it's the most deadliest. I mean, that was just just that. That's just that's just sh- shocking me. But it's something. All the more reason why this show is so important uh, to bring attention to really the, the vital work that cardiothoracic surgeons such as Dr. Williams do. Not just occasionally, but you know, 24/7, 365. Not that you're in on the in the surgery oper- operating room that constantly, but in terms of a career, you're thinking, you're meeting with patients, you're diagnosing patients, you're talking to family. So really, salute you. Uh, let, let's just kind of kind of jump in, and Dr. Williams, kind of tell us tell us a little, little bit about you know about yourself and and why you're able to even take the time to kind of kind of share with us your expertise.
2: Sure, then thank you so much for having me. Um, so just to give a little background, um, I am currently a, a cardiothoracic surgery fellow, as as mentioned at Emory. I just recently finished my general surgery training at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, where I am board certified in general surgery. So anything in the abdomen, like, you know, gallbladder, bowel, um, liver, etc. cetera. Um, but I did want to pursue further sub-specialized surgical training. Um, one, because, you know, lung cancer and esophageal cancer do run rampant in our communities and are often kind of forgotten by other um by other, you know, equally as deadly, but, um, more funded, um, cancers out there. And then also it's one of the cancers that we can cure surgically, um, if caught early enough. So, hmm. you know, there's nothing more satisfying than, you know, diagnosing someone with stage one lung cancer operating on them and they're cured without needing any further chemotherapy or radiation. So, um, it's something I really enjoy, um, and I hope to, you know, also be able to leave fellowship trained in heart surgery as well, which is what I'm currently doing. But um, my focus is more on oncology.
1: Fascinating, fascinating. And, and Reverend Clayton, can I kind of share the uh, the, the telling, telling our story motif, the purpose why we decided to kind of, uh, you know, kind of craft and frame this particular show around the, the theme of telling our story and as dr williams has already teased us with us really being able to kind of deal, <laughs> deal with some, some some really uh insightful and informative issues but but why did we we decided that this objective of telling telling our story series What what's, what's that all about
3: thank you so much tom really it was the brainchild of my colleague um, but we felt it would be a colossal event to have people of color tell their story
4: mm-hmm.
3: by doing so it would show our listening audience uh, that the storyteller didn't become an instant success but there may have been some struggles in their life during mm-hmm. their childhood during mm-hmm. high school in college
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, maybe some struggles because of their race and their gender um, but our hope is that by hearing their story, uh, it will give hope and determination to other people of color and people in general.
1: Excellent, excellent. So, Dr. Williams. I saw you sh- shaking your head, so I'm not <laughs> sure whether you went, went, went back to when you were five years old or 10 years old <laughs> or 15 years old, but I'm sure so, some memories kind of surfaced as Reverend Clayton was kind of get throwing the mic your way. So. Maybe weigh in about if you want to share about perhaps your family or why you ch- you, you referenced your career in the past and your career objectives moving forward, um, and but maybe weave in some of the work that you do as well. Um, and what does your typical week look like when you're not kind of keeping us uh, out of the clubs or bars on Friday afternoon? Yeah.
2: So yeah, I was nodding my head. I'm just because I do think it's great to have shows and exposure like this because you know, there's so few, um, I mean, in terms of CT surgeons, there's only about 3% are black in the United States. And so in medical school, honestly, this never career never even crossed my mind just because it just wasn't something, you know, we did. Um, and then even before medical school and undergrad, you know, I was told by my career counselor that there's no way I would even get into medical school. And so Mm. I think it's, um, you know, great. And it's one of the reasons I want to work in an academic institution, just to show, you know, younger, um, especially black women as well, that there are people that, you know, come from different backgrounds and can still kind of do what they hope to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of my uh, kind of day to day, it's, you know, fellowship has been pretty busy. It's a lot to learn in a three year program. And so um mm-hmm. Typically, especially now on cardiac surgery, I'm typically in the hospital by about four forty-five in the morning. Um, this week, this is the earliest I've gotten home this week. Actually, I typically get home around eight or
4: nine,
2: um, and I'm in the operating room most of the day. The cases are pretty long. Like, I did a heart transplant this week that took about nine hours or so. Um, and so it's you know it's rigorous work, but really fulfilling and um you know I think and then thoracic when I'm working more on lung cancer, the operations are typically shorter, but I'm in the hospital probably around just from six a.m. to maybe six, seven p.m. every day, every other weekend off.
1: Reverend Perry, I see your I see I see those cobwebs that that you 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 dusted off for today's show. So kind of weigh in if you would
0: I was really um, I have so many questions I, I don't know where to start
1: just go, go, start 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 at number one number
0: two truly really <laughs> fascinated uh, just having you on the show and I think that is just uh, a feather in 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 the cap of all of us who want to see better health outcomes and better better uh, participation of minorities in the healthcare field. You know, when you talked about surgery, one thing that went through my mind, cause we've been talking to surgeons uh, for the last nine years. And uh, with with black men, for example, in prostate surgery, we saw how, and even in breast cancer, we saw how it went from like radical surgery to a more uh, precision kind of surgery.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, um, even even to the point of robotic and it, with the Tulsa study, I have no idea what they do because you go in the same day and almost come come out the same day. So I mean, it just seems like medicine is just always evolving. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what you do, I mean, for nine hours in a, <laughs> is this something? It, and and so when you when you mentioned that transplant, one of the things that went through my mind was. In terms of availability and equity, how many black people will get that opportunity to get that to get a transplant.
2: And yeah, that is a great point. I mean, the goal of UNOS um, and the National Transplant Network is to make it equitable and to use kind of objective data on um, deciding who gets which organs. but. I mean, it, it, even before you get on the transplant list, it's harder. You know, Black people aren't going into the doctor as much. By the time they've seen someone, they may not be a candidate anymore. Or by the time they get in there too sick, they have poor outcomes. Um, and then you need a lot of support system. You need a lot of a huge team of people to really get you through. So even if you get the organ, I mean, the real important thing is the outcomes and the organ function and survival. And so there's definitely a lot of disparities among um, African-Americans and transplant. Um, I think some organs, you know, kidney transplants are probably a little bit better than others, but, you know, heart and lung transplants, you know, it's, it's really rare. I mean, it's hard to find good organs. And so it's really important to raise awareness that if people kind of stay on top of it, you have to see you know your transplant team. Every so often, keep up with you know a ton of labs. It's you know it's a big undertaking, and so, mm-hmm. so I definitely agree with that.
0: And the wait time for these for to get on being on the list. How long is the wait
2: time? For yeah.
0: Minorities, like a three. Yeah,
2: I mean it's it kind of depends. I mean we have people that come in so sick that they're on the you know they're kind of escalated up within weeks. Um, at least for, you know, heart and lung transplants, but it's hard. I mean, it, it's kind of a sweet spot where you can't be too healthy and then you sit on the list for years, but then once you're, you know, so sick, you kind of have a short window of time where you've got to get mm-hmm. a, an organ mm-hmm. or you may not survive.
1: Mm-hmm. And Do- Dr. Williams, I want to ask you about your, your peer review, uh, journals and articles that you've submitted, because I don't think okay. people understand and Reverend very kind of indicated this about the evolving science, but you're not only uh, in the in the in the operating room, but you're also mm-hmm. contributing to the academic research. But before I go there, I just want to jump back very briefly. If uh, we have a number of young people, high school students, college students, that that view this show and are looking for kind of guidance or or inspiration, and I guess wondered in your in your when you were in high school or or college, what because you referenced the one counselor that kind of discouraged you. What, what can you can you think of one or two incidents that kind of told you that, you know, I'm gonna climb this mountain regardless, was it, <laughs> was it, was it, did someone smack you in the face? Did you decide I'm just gonna do it yourself? Did, I was just curious yeah. what, if you had any, any of those Damascus Road experiences.
2: Yeah, so, you know, in high school and the beginning of college, I actually planned on becoming an artist. Um, hmm. I started out as an art major at, at Howard University um, and then you know, I, I had always liked medicine and science. my My mother's a physician assistant, and so I've spent a lot of time in hospitals growing up. Um, but you know, it's hard because you always feel like, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Is this mm-hmm. really something I can do? And so that's when I started kind of speaking to the guidance counselor, started to investigate what it would take to apply to medical school. And, you know all of them pretty much said it was too late. I started as an art major. There was no way I was going to get the credits to just not even try. And so luckily I'm kind of the type of person where if someone tells me I can't do something, that makes me want to do it even more. Mm, <laughs> and So um, so that kind of drove me to just kind of want to prove everyone wrong. And <gasps> so fortunately I uh, was able to do that. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people would have just taken their advice and given up, but you know you kind of have to just turn off the the naysayers and go yes. for it i mean the worst thing i've had people have friends of mine that have applied to medical medical school three four times before getting in and so it's just kind of perseverance and i was fortunate to get in the first round but mm. it's hard when there are people that aren't supporting you
1: mm. and reverend clayton i see your see your brain so your brain cells kind of connect talking to one another as well I sense the questions on your mind as
3: well. Well, I was just listening to, to Brittany, and she was sharing with us the difficulty it was for so many people to get in.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, can you share with with us some of the reasons why
2: mm-hmm. Uh,
3: mm-hmm. it's so difficult to get into medical school?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot of it is there's not a lot of spots is the first problem. And then the second problem is that it's all about test scores. Mm -hmm. And as you know, as we know that these standardized tests are often stacked against minorities. Um, And then you have to have, you know, I had to work. I worked at the Apple store for several years and I had to save money to even pay for a course to study for the MCAT. And so it's you know I mean I'm sure it's possible to do without paying for courses and doing practice tests, but it's extremely difficult. Um, so I think you know especially nowadays I look at the medical students now, and I don't know if I would even get in now because they're having to do so much. You know they (laughs) they volunteer. They're you know they we have these like Nobel Peace Prize winners applying now, so it's (laughs) it gets harder every year and um. You know, I don't know what's gonna happen because people have just so much pressure on them. From I even had actually a, a high school student email to Shadow at the hospital. I'm like, these these kids are starting really early, which is great. But then the people like me who kind of decided junior year of college to do this, you're already behind the eight ball.
1: Well, Dr. Williams, we we've just met through visa and we really haven't Met, but I'm going to go on the record and say that. And I'm not sure if Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton agree with me. But you, you strike me as being a, a an unreasonably modest person,
4: <laughs> unreasonably
1: un modest person. So let me let me, you, you peer talk to us about peer-reviewed journal articles.
4: Yeah.
1: Uh, this is something again. I want to give you a chance to wave your flag a little bit more. I'll be your PR, <laughs> be your PR person for this show. Uh, Thank you. Please.
2: Um, so in academic medicine, one of the goals, so that usually the three pillars are, you know, clinical care, research, and education. And so most, um, encourage you to do two of the three. So I've kind of really focused in on doing research. And so I actually took two years out of my surgical training to do dedicated research time. Um, at which point I wrote, uh, probably about. Twenty different manuscripts
4: mm-hmm.
2: on different research topics. I went to UNC and took a two-year master's program in one year to learn statistics to be able to run my own data, mm-hmm. um, and was able to really contribute to you know the existing literature on um, disparities, a lot of global surgery work, um, and then also just looking at kind of outcomes and how we can improve healthcare overall. And so with peer-reviewed journal articles, you have to you spend all this time writing the manuscript, collecting data, following patients, and then you have to submit to different journals and they have kind of a group of people on their editorial board that review and either accept or reject um, um, your papers. And so I've been really proud of, you know, my body of work and being able to be that productive and have, my work published and so um so and especially in reputable journals where that's kind of where the medical community looks for you know the up-to-date guidelines and um what's going on today
1: reverend perry say something because again we just saw that modest that modest approach if you and i had said, said that it would have been a little different and there's Terms of beating yeah. ourselves on the back, but so I guess, I guess, I'm guess in your awe at the moment, Reverend Perry, what kind of comes to your mind at the moment is you heard her just?
0: What comes to my mind is uh, my daughter is now working on her um, her doctorate, and one of the one of the difficult hurdles is that course called statistics.
4: Mm. <laughs> yeah, mm.
0: I have a I have a math teacher in my church who um, who who. Who even said to me, "Statistic is a difficult subject." So when you said you were doing that, I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm racing in my mind and saying, "How is that? How is she doing that?" I mean, most people run from statistics, not run <laughs> to it, mm-hmm. <laughs> particularly <laughs> black people, because I don't think that we are given the same um, the same passion for math that we should be given in early early grades. And so, mm-hmm. later, we are. It's something that you know we're more into the arts and stuff, but it is so essential that the math part.
4: Mm-hmm. And I
0: like the other part that you talked about, and you talked about the global. Mm-hmm. I was on a call a ground rounds with one of our heart doctors, and they were doing a. They were speaking with a uh, a medical director in in uh, Jamaica, and mm-hmm. they were saying that they don't have the same kinds of techniques or modern equipment. Oh yeah. Sometimes they don't even have, you know, like the, the people who they can uh, reach out to within their own group. And so they had, they had formed this partnership, which is like oh. a global partnership where three or four United States hospitals will join with a Jamaican hospital or an African hospital and they will pass information you know, between each other in order Mm -hmm. to respond. That's, that is, that is, that is is global. That is worldwide. That is something where Mm -hmm. that touches my heart because I know when we talk about underserved and underprivileged in this country, can you imagine what it's like Mm -hmm. in
2: this country? Oh yeah. Yeah, global surgery is really a huge passion of mine. Part of the two years I took off during my training, I was funded by the NIH to spend a year in Malawi and Africa to um, do some research on esophageal cancer. Um, Unfortunately, I was there for two weeks and then COVID kind (laughs) of sent me back to America. (laughs) But um, but even before that, I spent some time in medical school in Ethiopia and just like being in their operating rooms where they may have a day without running water and you can't you can't run an operating room without water or the way here we're so focused on sterility and you know all of that in their operating rooms the windows are open because it's so hot otherwise and so my job as a medical student was to swat birds away from getting into people's (laughs) body cavities so it's just so so interesting you know and we definitely have underserved parts of America but you know, when you go to Ethiopia and Malawi and operate with them, and they're working with so much less, it's just really flooring. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Again,
1: uh, Dr. Williams, another modest, another modest response. Let me push you a little, little for, I, you know, I'm trying to give you a compliment here, but let me push you a little further. There's a recent article that, what, one of one out of seven people will live in the be be in, in the african continent in a, in a few years so this is where really our our, our much of the world will be uh will, will be living uh so i just wanted one if you want to kind of comment a little bit about that because you 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 you're, you're, you're relatively younger than reverend clayton reverend perry and myself uh buddy, but 20 30 40 years from now who knows where things might might be in terms of global I guess worldwide health I guess health for and we mm-hmm. know about communicable uh, diseases and so I just wonder if you wanted to kind of look into your crystal ball a little second and, and chat, chat about uh, health for the world and for the planet moving forward.
2: Yeah, um, you know I'm kind of focused in the surgical world. Um, so in terms of, in terms of that, I think there's so much work to be done, but I think that the future is promising. I, you know, there used to be what I guess people call now medical tourism, where groups of surgeons would go over to Africa for a couple of weeks, do a bunch of operations and, and leave. And everyone felt good about themselves. And then, you know, we know now that those patients did poorly, no one they didn't teach anyone how to take care of them. And then so they would have, you know, wound complications, infections. Um, and so that's fallen out of favor. And what my focus has been is more less of flying in, doing a few surgeries and leaving, but more of building capacity for Mm -hmm. them to be able to do, Mm -hmm. take care of those patients themselves. And so one of the reasons I loved being at UNC was they have a partnership with the hospital in Malawi and they actually started a training program so that they would train Malawian surgeons. And we've had this exchange kind of program where one of us every year would spend a year there um, and kind of work with them and We work remotely with them and, you know, there's a lot of opportunities, especially in the cancer world with, Mm. we have kind of multidisciplinary meetings here that are often already held on Zoom. And so someone in in Africa with a question about a certain tumor or treatment options can kind of participate in that. And then my dream, which is probably pretty far off is, as you mentioned with robotic surgery, that's one of my, um, one of my. Future specialties. I'm hoping that that'll provide some opportunities to kind of help with remote uh, surgical mm. care.
1: Mm. Tremendous, tremendous. We have about 20, 20 25 minutes, gents and, and ladies. So let's, as the spirit moves us, whatever kind of comes across your mind. Uh, Reverend Clayton, you have any thoughts in this regard?
3: I, I want to just go back a little bit. Um, I, I go back to the, the conversation about statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Williams, uh, I was invited to your high school,
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and uh, you, you know that my daughter went there as well.
2: Yes. Yeah.
3: But what what I was most impressed with, um, I, I went to a math class and I went to a music theory class. Mm. I think there were about six girls in the math class. Mm -hmm. This calculus problem on the board and one girl would go to the board and wherever she went, if she had a problem, the other girls would kind of help her get through it. So
4: that
3: next time, you know, she wouldn't have that problem.
4: Mm -hmm. And then
3: I went to the music theory. And it, it was only two girls in that class.
4: Oh, wow. <laughs> and
3: and they broke down a chord that I know guys who've been playing music all their life, they couldn't break the chord down like that. Mm. So do you think that uh, going to a high school like that helped prepare you for this work?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I will always be happy that I went to Westover for high school because They had a phenomenal, phenomenal program called women in science and engineering, the WISE program. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think it was actually just starting when I was there. Um, But it was great exposure to, you know, we did computer programming, calculus. um, And I love that kind of environment where everyone was kind of helping each other through it um, and thinking different ways about how to solve a problem. And then you could go from that class to, you know, music theory, art history, things like that. And just kind of you weren't your mind was really getting trained to be able to bounce from, you know, different worlds. And so I think that's helped me a lot now, because oftentimes, especially in surgery, you're kind of a, a surgeon first or or you're a researcher or you're you know a teacher. But you have to be kind of fluid and be able to think with both sides of your mind. And mm. I have students now that will be doing papers with me, and they also do medical illustration, which is one of my um my kind of hobbies. And so you can not only write a research paper, but provide the illustrations for it. And so mm. I think going to that kind of school really helped kind of train both the left and the right side of my brain, as they would say.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 Reverend Perry?
0: Uh- yeah, I think that um, one of the curious things that that um, tickles my thinking is that it wasn't simply the fact that they said you couldn't. I mm. keep thinking that there was something else that said you could. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know, it's like in, in most fields, there is, we believe some kind of call or some some other something that pushes us or motivates us to move in a in a particular direction you, because coming from a high school like that you could have went in five different or 10 different directions okay. and yeah. and being at howard woo woo you could <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Oh you're scoring points now doctor <laughs>
2: points now? <laughs> yeah yeah no i definitely agree with that um and especially in medicine there's just so every step of the way there's somebody telling you you can't do it and I don't know if that's specific to medicine since that's all I've kind of known but um it's just really disheartening at times because even once you're in medical school once I became interested in surgery you know everyone's like oh I mean are you sure you want to do surgery it's a really hard life you know hours are long, how are you gonna have a family? Or, you know, how are you gonna get married and things like that? And and you know, it's just really every step of the way. And then once I matched into a surgical program, initially I'd actually wanted to do pediatric surgery. And um Mm. it's one of the hardest uh surgical specialties to get into. Mm. And so every time someone would say, you know, you have to have really good scores, you know, it's the hardest one to get into. And it's just I don't know what it is about it. (laughs) But you kind of really have to have that kind of personality where that actually like fuels you.
1: Mm. And, and uh Dr. Williams, if I can just drill down a little bit on terms of uh when Reverend Perry was was asking you to kind of share about the influences, have there been any particular individuals or or church institutions or home institutions that you think have enabled you to kind of light that fire or keep your optimism burning? Again, the theme yeah. of the, the, the today's show is kind of telling our story, and we really want to give you. Complete amplitude in terms of uh, telling your story.
2: Yeah, you know, honestly, I think it it is almost genetic for me. My dad is very similar in that way. Hmm. He um, he also went to Howard for undergrad and decided mm-hmm. to go to law school and everyone said, oh, you're not going to get into law school. And so he said, okay, well, I'm going to go to Harvard Law School. And everyone said, you're definitely not going to get into Harvard Law School. (laughs) And so, of course, he went to Harvard Law School. He Mm. didn't actually, I don't think he even really wanted to be a lawyer, but because people said he couldn't do it, he went to law school, he went to Harvard, he practiced for a few years and then stopped practicing and did what he wanted to do. (laughs) But he's just the type of person that because someone said he couldn't do it, he went through the like five years of his life just to prove everyone wrong. <laughs> mm, mm, mm.
0: as a statistician as a part of a statistician in your work, what do you see as the um, the inequities in terms of numbers of uh, mortality rates for blacks with mm. regards to Lung cancer and some of these mm-hmm. diseases now that are, that are caught early can mm-hmm. have positive uh, results, but because mm-hmm. of lack of uh, access or care, mm-hmm. you know, we are still where are we on that scale, basically? Yeah.
2: You know, I actually recently did a roundtable discussion for a CT um, program on disparities in lung cancer. And it's interesting because. The it seems like one of the big places where we fall through the cracks is in screening. Um, I don't even know how much of our community is aware that there's now these new screening guidelines where if you're over fifty and have uh, and are a smoker or have quit in the last fifteen years that you are eligible and through you know um Medicare Medicaid to get a CT scan every year to hmm. screen for lung cancer until you're eighty. Um, And I think it's common across all screening, um, cancer screenings, but especially in lung cancer. I don't know if it's um, just a lack of awareness or a lack of access. Um, People probably think it costs money. It really should be covered now that it's officially a guideline. Um, But I think screening is a big issue where we fall into, into the cracks. And then also with clinical trials, I think Black people have been historically and rightfully so um, distrustful of the medical field. And so it's really hard to recruit African-Americans to studies. And so there are all these new immunotherapies and um, chemotherapies that they're in active clinical trials and they're showing to be effective. But Mm. we don't actually know what it's going to do in Black people because there's just so few numbers that are enrolling. And on one hand, I understand it. I mean, I don't, I don't want to feel like a guinea pig. But at the other end of it, you know, we, you know, genetically, we have some differences, and so it's useful to know: are these medications going to work differently in our population, or do we need a dose reduction or dose increase? Or mm. Um, mm. so I think mm. clinical trials and screening are really the two big areas where we kind of fall through the cracks with lung cancer.
1: Mm uh 10 10 10 to 15 more minutes gentlemen and, and ladies so let's just kind of plunge in but Dr Williams talk to me about uh, cigarettes as you know several states have uh, banned the sale of menthol cigarettes in over a hundred municipalities but now I'm reading that even the cigarette industry is thinking of different ways of putting different things into the cigarettes that will still give the the effect the addictive effect of, of menthol just if you if you mm-hmm. could wave wave your queen, your you're, yeah. you're, 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 you're queen wand, would we abolish uh, the sale of cigarettes totally?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, cigarettes, you know, lung cancer is the you know, highest mortality in our country for cancer, and it's 90% of it is cigarettes. And so it's just, you know, it's such a preventable disease that kills so many people, and it's all cigarettes. Um, and now there are studies coming out that vaping is having similar effects, mm-hmm. which has kind of become the new thing. And so, I mean, I love what they do in California with certain like just raising the taxes on all that kind of thing that's you know bad for people's health. But I think if we could just <laughs> ban that ban all that altogether, it would be phenomenal. I mean, it's just mm. so we see so many people that even after they're diagnosed with cancer, they just cannot quit.
1: Mm. Mm. And I, That you- is true. I see Reverend Perry. I think Reverend Perry's taking notes to add to your next peer review journal. So you know, <laughs> volunteer to be assistant, but uh, uh,
0: I, w- I wanted to simply say, you say I'm, I'm taking notes because I think um, the clinical trials and the screenings are are really the the foundation of where we are. Mm-hmm. The problem also that you would add to that is the access and mm-hmm. the information stream. That would allow a person who has been a smoker to know that, yeah, you can get a free screening. Yeah, doing this could could add years to your life.
4: Mm-hmm. That,
0: somehow, that door is shut to us. It's mm-hmm. Shut to us for education is shut because of privilege or non privilege. It's shut because you know there is nobody there who's who's trying to give us that um, that. Uh, that to bring that information to us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we do hip hop, we do radio, we do jazz, we do Beyonce, we do all of that. But, you know, I, Reverend Clayton was mentioning today that now we're having some people like Anthony Anderson on talking about, you know, diabetes and, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on. And so we're, we're, we're getting the message out, but we're slow to do it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the, I think that would be the third part of that um, equation that might lead us to some real positive outcomes.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's also a problem in our primary care access as well, because, hmm. you know, the primary care physician is really the gatekeeper of all this. And if they're not aware of new guidelines and and their you know patient population they think oh well they're not going to get this screening study or this and that or i'm just going to try and get them their colonoscopy and that's about all they're going to (laughs) do um which i mean it's sad but i know even in my own family i have older family members that i can't even get to get a colonoscopy and so to think about getting a ct scan every year is just daunting um and so i get it they have you know big patient loads and and a lot to cover, but I think really getting the word out there is is huge.
0: Yeah, we've had people who had sickle cell who would go to the hospital complaining of pain and told mm-hmm. that, oh, you're a drug addict, so we're not gonna give it mm-hmm. to you. But a, a, a white person could go in with the same spiel, and mm-hmm. they said, yeah, we'll help you because, you know, again, that whole implied bias is there in medicine. And I'm, that's why we're so glad we have people who look like you and think like you, uh, who can help change uh, this whole scenario, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I applaud you. I'm, I'm just so glad to see you.
1: Indeed, <laughs> indeed, yeah. indeed. Mm-hmm. Re- Reverend Clayton, I want to give you, as we weigh in, let's take another five, eight, or, eight or nine minutes.
3: Well, we were, there's a question that uh, I, Want Dr. Williams to chime in on? Mm-hmm. How would you suggest engaging the African American community in conversation about health?
2: Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think things like you know, like radio shows like this, you know, churches, um, really anywhere that I mean, even if we can get it into, you know celebrities like you mentioned anthony anderson um i think it's really just social media and whatever we are accessing frequently the more we can get the word out the better um it's just hard because i think seeing you know certain people when they give that message i think it's going to be taken a different way than if there's someone that looks like them saying hey like we need to go get these ct scans so i think you know getting someone who looks like us and can be the face and encourage the community wherever we are um even if we're in you know barbershops <laughs> like mm. getting <laughs> the word out there i mean it's just you know it, i think any little bit helps any one person that i convinced to go get small cancer screening i feel like an accomplishment
4: mm. Mm.
0: I think the other part of that is training for doctors and young doctors going into medicine
4: mm-hmm.
0: so important like I've been reading these books uh on medicine you know Blacks in medicine physicians in medicines mm-hmm. apartheid, and, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that seems to be prevalent in 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 this field of privilege and that is the idea that we are that we're immune that we that oh, are we don't we stronger so we don't have you don't have to give us any pain medication or mm-hmm. you know, you, we you just go in and spend 8 minutes and and you're done because you're you're a super black person and mm-hmm. you know you're not entitled to the kind of precision medicine that we're doing so okay. I think that you know in training going forward in our medical schools and practices equity and inclusion and all of that but that sensitivity you know, let me I, and one more thing I just want to say to you when I was growing up they told me I used to date a girl who was going at um, Einstein School of Medicine
4: mm-hmm.
0: and was a preacher okay. and um, one of the things that she'd mentioned to me she said you know I want to be a surgeon but surgeons are considered to be cold and <laughs> no bedside manner <laughs> she said so i'm 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 i really want to go that way but you know I, I know a couple of the brothers here and they don't they're they're so strict and stern and they don't have a life i don't think i want to be that so she ended up being a psychiatrist mm. in fact she worked with uh malcolm x grandson after he burned oh, wow. yeah mm-hmm. wow
4: mm-hmm.
2: And that's very true. Even today, I mean, it's it's still considered kind of a field for, you know, I'll say it's stuffy white men. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think until we just start infiltrating, it's going to stay that way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, even even as a black woman, I, I'm so lucky to have some phenomenal mentors that are other black women in surgery. Um but even them, I mean, they work so hard to get their foot in the door. So when they see someone like me who, for example, I wear my uh, my hospital shoes are hot pink. And so even the black women mentors of mine are like, you really shouldn't be wearing those shoes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I get what they're saying. They're like, we need to like blend in. We don't want to cause too much of a fuss. And I'm like, you know, but it's going to stay that way until somebody changes it. And so for a while, I kind of. Took their advice and I was just like, let me just be as bland as possible. But you know, I think this is you know who I am, and they're gonna take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah, I'm start with <laughs> yeah, and well, everyone has appreciated it so far. So,
1: gentlemen, I want to give Dr. Williams the last word and give you gentlemen the chance to last word as well. But I just want to throw in one other one other question before we conclude, Dr. Williams, if you could um, sp- speak to some of the younger Young ladies that listen to this show about managing their career or, or starting a family or or, or sustaining mm-hmm. a partnership, the, those challenges uh, seem to be it's it's more for the, the the women in our society to have to deal with those issues than the men. I just wondered mm-hmm. if you'd like to share some some comments with the some of the young folks that women in particular that might be watching the show.
2: Yeah, um, well, you know, I think that that's a common um, a common issue with women wanting to go into medicine and then especially surgery in general. And I would say that it is a valid concern that the hours are long, but they're not always going to be like that. Um, once I'm completely finished with training, I can have more of a flexible schedule. I've been fortunate enough to recently be engaged. And so, Congratulations. <laughs> you know, thank you. It's not impossible. Uh, you just have to find someone that is willing to uh, deal with your crazy hours. But um, I think if it's something you want to do, you should just go for it. And and I am always happy to talk to any young black women, especially that are interested in medicine. Um, so I'd be happy to give my, my contact information for anyone interested.
1: Please do, please do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, I think that one of the things I, I would like to see happen is Women like yourself, and others in the field, like Dr. Onyema's wife,
4: mm-hmm.
0: Grace, who deals with nephrology, uh, she was on the show, and our young ambassadors, our young women, were just thrilled. <laughs> and maybe we can send you that that show. But mm-hmm. I, I think that one of the things that I would like to see in the future is persons such as yourself would adopt somebody, some mm-hmm. young person who had the interest. So that they would have a mentor out because if, if you wait on the school to tell you or if you wait on others to tell you you know we need people who who can dream and who are willing yes. to have their dream with others who who may also have a dream but just afraid mm-hmm. um, so it's almost like you know if you hear a great preacher and you say i want to be a great preacher you hear a great lawyer you say i want to be a great lawyer mm-hmm. but if we don't have that contact and in our community you know, we, 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 we highlight the negatives and mm-hmm. never the positives. So we mm-hmm. get like, to accentuate the positives and hopefully we can um, change the face of medicine. And mm-hmm. so-
1: Reverend Clayton, I want to give you, take 30 seconds and then uh, Dr. Williams, I want you to conclude right. and share any parting thoughts.
3: I want to take this time to thank Dr. Williams for uh, coming on and sharing with us this evening um being in surgery all day and still felt that it not robbery to mm. share with us uh, mm-hmm. we are so grateful and i'm going to boast when the family gets together
2: uh,
3: <laughs> how how well she represented and we're just grateful thank you so much much love to you
2: thank you so much
1: Dr. Williams, mm-hmm. you have the last word, and include if you would uh, whatever contact information you're comfortable in sharing with people.
2: Yes, definitely. So, yeah, thank you again for having me on the show. I love any opportunity to promote more Black people, Black women in medicine and surgery, and so um, if you think if you have that inkling that you might be interested, I'm happy to speak with anyone. My email address is Brittany B-R-I-T-T-N-E-Y. Dot williams at me me.com
1: excellent Thanks. maybe just repeat that just one more time
2: mm-hmm. it's brittany b-r-i-t-t-n-e-y dot williams at me.com
1: thank you thank you everybody because i mean you, you you dr williams you extended that right hand of fellowship so you've reached out <laughs> people, people can now reach out re- reach back to yeah. you thank Absolutely.
3: you for that thank you for calling tom
0: <laughs> the plane is about to take up an offering for
1: you. <laughs> you. My, 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 my cash app is okay. <laughs> anyway, everybody take care, be well. You're listening to the Topic and Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Your home for community
4: radio.